we continue in our rhythm of grace this morning, the pattern of the gospel, we come now to the Word of the Lord, and we come to receive His instruction, and we come self-consciously knowing that uh, it is by the Word that God creates. You know, it is by the Word that God creates everything (laughs) at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and how? By the Word of His power, He makes things out of nothing. It's a remarkable thought, and as we'll talk about later, He does that for us too. It's by His Word that He creates us, that He forms and creates Christ in us. He comes to us with a word from another world, but He comes to us as the one who by His Word created this world, and not just with physical laws, laws of gravity and whatnot, but with laws of righteousness, with laws of equity, with laws of love, of peace, of joy, of justice, all of these things by which this world, just like the physical laws, are run. And when we run afoul of them, what are we doing? We're being foolish. It's like jumping off a building and not expecting the law of gravity to pull you to the earth. It doesn't work. And so God, in His grace, has not just given us Christ, He's given us the written Word as well, and He's given it to us that we might be instructed, that we might learn how to live well and glorify Him. So we come as those kind of people to the Word of the Lord today to receive His instruction, and we return to this study of the Gospel of Luke that, man, we have been in since November of last year, and we are almost at the end of it. We are at the story of the death and burial of Jesus, which means, practically speaking, that if you're here for the first time today, you know, yeah. So here's what's happened recently. What's happened recently is that Jesus Christ, whom Luke has made clear, is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He is the invisible God made visible, the intangible God made tangible, the incomprehensible God still incomprehensible. But let's give him some credit because he came to us in the most comprehensible form possible. He clothed himself through a supernatural conception with our humanity and walked among us. All right, that Jesus who has lived the perfect life, who has given a blaze of miracle, which parenthetically is what you would expect, wouldn't you, if he's God? Most recently, that Jesus has been arrested by the Jewish religious leaders in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken to the home of the high priest, where he served out the rest of that night in handcuffs, if you will, listening to his best friend and chief apostle deny him publicly three times, and all of the religious establishment of Israel, who are supposed to be the most ethical people, conspiring together how on the next morning they could deny him a fair trial, which is also something he's already at this point in the narrative been subjected to. They came together in their council. They charged, tried, and convicted him of a crime that they and he knew that he did not commit. And then because they have no power to put people to death, and that's the goal, guys, they marched him over to Pontius Pilate and demanded that he put Jesus to death. And Pilate said, you know, I think I'm going to send him to Herod. And Herod said, you know, I think I'm going to send him back to Pilate. And in the process of all of this, Jesus has been mocked, beaten, abused, spit upon, had a crown of thorns literally crushed down upon his head, had parts of his beard plucked out of his face, and then at the hands of Pontius Pilate that the Jews successfully forced to crucify him, was stripped naked, tied with his hands on the top of a pole, and shredded by cruelly fashioned Roman whips, wielded by professional executioners and torturers. It's what these guys did for a living. Like maybe you're in real estate. They're in the professional torture and execution business. Seriously. And having endured that then, He was laid down upon a rough wooden cross and had seven-inch spikes 
driven through the base of his hand in all likelihood, probably right about here in the wrist, and driven through his feet, one on top of the other also in all likelihood. And when we pick up the story today, he's been hanging there for three hours already, naked, alongside a busy public road right outside one of the city gates. And he's been hanging there, pushing and pulling against the nails in his feet and in his hands so that he can relieve the pressure on his chest cavity, if you will, and just get a decent breath of air, dying from asphyxiation. Because when you're crucified, that's how you die. It's a relatively bloodless form of execution, if you think about it. It's just through the wrists, through the feet, that's it. It doesn't bleed a lot. It doesn't do any harm to the vital organs, crucifixion. You die when you no longer have the strength to push off against the nails in your feet and to pull up against the nails in your hands or wrists so that you can relieve the pressure on your chest cavity and get a decent breath of air. When you can't do that anymore, your breathing, because of the posture of crucifixion, is so shallow that you suffocate. So that's where we pick up our story this morning. And again, if you're just joining us today, you're probably thinking, oh man, I wish I had waited until next week, you know, because... Next week is the story of his resurrection, and that is admittedly a happier tale. It's a story of light and life. But please don't miss that there is no story of light and life, not for Jesus, not for me, not for you, and not for anyone else, apart from this precious story of darkness and death. And please also don't miss, and this is what I really want you to see today, that even in darkness and death, for those of us who belong to Christ... Even in darkness and death, meaning my darkness and death and yours, and we all have our days, do we not? Our seasons, our crosses, if you will. Even in darkness and death, there is reason to praise and to worship Jesus and to follow Him courageously. In fact, there are several reasons, and what I want to do today is point some of them at least out to you as an encouragement to your faith from a dark story particularly for those of you who are experiencing darkness in your story. And so, with that in mind, we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44, where Luke says this. He says, it was now about the sixth hour. So for the first time in his account of the crucifixion of Jesus, he tells us what time of day it actually is. Now, why does he do that? He does that because the sixth hour is noon. It's the middle of the day. It's the time of day when the sun is at its highest and brightest, and now he will tell us, that even though that's the case, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And the implication here is while the sun's light failed completely. That's the idea. And as we'll see here in a second, Jesus dies at the end of three hours of this darkness. And so what is Luke saying? He's telling us that for the last three hours of the life of Jesus, while he's hanging there, pushing and pulling against the nails in his feet and wrists, trying to get a gasp of air, if you will, and dying from asphyxiation, suffocating to death, the sun in the sky, which would normally, naturally, have been at its brightest and highest, was blocked out entirely. It's midnight dark, I think is the idea. So it's a story that is completely shrouded in darkness, as is parts of my story, 
as are parts of your story. And I think, therefore, that if we're going to understand how this story involving Jesus interacts with my story and your story, then we need to know some things about darkness. We need to understand what it is. And the curious thing about the Bible is when you come to the Bible and you say, all right, what is darkness? The Bible says, you know what? I'm going to tell you what darkness is, but here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it by showing you light and just telling you this is a, it, darkness is the opposite. So I want to know about darkness. Okay, biblically, then what is light? You open the Bible to the first page, and what do you learn? Light is the creative gift of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth were, was dark, and it was dead, among other things, until God spoke His first creative words, which were, let there be light, and there was light. Light is the creative gift of God. It's true in the created order, but it's true in me and in you as well. Paul speaks of us as new creations, and here's how else he speaks of us. He speaks of us as those into whose hearts God has shown, now listen to the imagery, the light, you hear it, of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, just like God stepped into the dark, dead world that he originally created, he stepped into my dark, dead soul, just like yours. And even as he said, let there be light, and there was light in the created order, he said, let there be light, and there was light in Tom or in you. That's the idea. We even speak of it and think of it in those terms. It's like, hey, I've heard the gospel a hundred times, but it's like the light went on that time. Yes, it did. Exactly. God sovereignly spoke a creative word in your heart. And the light shone, the light of the gospel. And you recognized who God is and who you are now really and truly. And you felt the implications of that and rushed to the one who is Jesus, to the one who suffers and dies for you in the story that we're looking at today. But light is the creative gift of God, not just in the created order and in us, but through us too, because Jesus, who identifies himself as the light of the world, then turns right around and looks at those of us who claim him and to whose hearts God has said, let there be light. And what does he say? He says, oh, and incidentally, you're the light of the world. And by the way, here's your assignment. You're to go out and so let your light shine before men that they may see your what? Your good works. Now, so then what are they? They're works of light, are they not? Your works of selflessness, your works of justice, your works of righteousness, your works in where you're coming along and stepping actively into the world and at your own expense, oftentimes, undoing the effects of sin in this world. In the name of Jesus, preaching the gospel all along the way, they're works of light. You're to let your light so shine before men that they may see those works of light, your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So light is the creative gift of God, so then what is darkness? It's the anti-creative gift of the enemy, isn't it? Or curse. It's his work, and it's a very different kind of work. It's decreative. It's deconstructive. And that's true in our world, and it's true in our hearts. He loves to come to us and say, oh, really? You're loved? By God. Yeah, let's replay your history. Let's talk about your failures. Let's walk back through who you really are. He loves to come to us and say, oh, you're valuable, are you really? Is that right? You weren't valued by your mother. You weren't valued by your ex-spouse. You aren't valued by your... It's deconstructive. It's decreative and it's anti-gospel and it is a lie. But it's a work. And he does his works of darkness in some sense, at least through us, or at least we participate. Do we not? I mean, we all do it. 
And on Thursday, as I'm thinking about this point, I'm thinking, well, maybe I should give some examples of works of darkness. And then it occurred to me that every human being on the planet, okay, when we're about to perform a work of darkness, like if somebody stopped us and said, is this a work of darkness? We'd know. (laughs) Needs no illustration. All right, so light is the creative gift of God in the creation in us and through us as by the power of His Spirit and in community with His people, we go out into an otherwise dark world and do and say works of light. But what else? Okay, light in the Bible represents that which is pure. So darkness, impure. Light is that which is true, darkness untrue. Light represents wisdom and understanding. Darkness is foolishness and ignorance. Light brings joy, darkness brings sorrow. Light also reveals. In other words, light brings sight. We see this in reference to God's Word. God comes to us and says, hey, here's the Word of God. Are you ready? It is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. It's that wisdom from another world that works in this world because it comes from the one who authored this world, not just physically, but in every other way as well. He gives to us wisdom by which we may live skillfully, well in this life. And like ignoring the law of gravity is perilous, ignoring the law of God is perilous. It is to walk in the darkness, and perils await you in the darkness. That's the idea. Light brings sight, and light represents the favor of God, and darkness again and again and again and again represents his judgment. And so then in telling us that the last three hours of Jesus' life that he spends pushing and pulling against the nails in his hands and feet so that he can gasp out another breath of air and stave off death by asphyxiation are spent in a supernatural kind of a darkness. He's telling us at the same time that this is what Christ in part came into the world to do. He is taking into his own soul all of our darkness And he is bearing the weight that is infinite and eternal of the judgment of Almighty God for all of our darkness, not just darkness outside of us, but inside of us, not just darkness done by others, but darkness done by us. It's very personal. And to what end? Because we see that next, to the end that you and I might, like him, have a relationship with God the Father. And I say that because Luke then says this, Second part of verse 45, he says, "...and the curtain of the temple which guarded," hear that word, "...the way into the heart of that temple, which was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, was torn into two pieces. It was shred down the middle. It was torn from top to bottom. It was separated." Now, what's the significance of that? It's hugely significant. The Holy of Holies, guys, was patterned after the Garden of Eden. Now, what was the Garden of Eden then? The Garden of Eden was the place where before sin, before darkness, and before death entered into the world at the hands of men, not God. God and man walked together in perfect relationship. So the Holy of Holies is patterned after that. It's a perfect square, just like the Garden of Eden. It's located on a high place, just like the Garden of Eden. It has one way in and one way out, just like the Garden of Eden. Again and again, we see all these similarities. It's oriented to the east, just like the Garden of Eden. And the veil that covered the Holy of Holies was ornamented with pictures of the cherubim. Now, why is that significant? Because after sin, darkness, and death entered into the world at the hands of men, God ejected man from the Garden of Eden. And what did He place at the gate? Cherubim. To guard the way. 
So then in tearing the veil from top to bottom, what is Almighty God himself miraculously saying? What is he miraculously doing? He has a miraculous message in the darkness. He has a miraculous message here. He's saying, look, for those of you who have faith in this Jesus who suffers and dies, and he dies at the time the veil is torn, same time the cherubim have been dismissed. The way to the garden, if you will, the way to perfect relationship yet again with Almighty God is open to those with faith in this Jesus. And for that matter, what else did the garden contain? The tree of life, the way to eternal life, you see, is open yet again to those of us with faith in Christ. It's remarkable. It's pretty amazing. And so Luke says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and then... Jesus gathered all of his strength, and he pushed and pulled against those nails one last time to get one last, in this case, big, deep breath, and then calling out with a loud voice. Notice what he says, because what he says is, Father, and I want you to stop there for a minute and recognize that what Luke has just taught us is that Father is the exact same relationship that this Jesus has suffered and now died here, as we'll see, to give to you. The cherubim are dismissed. God is your heavenly Father. But what else is Jesus teaching us here? If we have that same relationship, He's teaching us that that God is present in the darkness, isn't He? I mean, He's speaking to Him. And not only is He present in the darkness, but He's present as our perfect, loving, heavenly Father in the darkness. And not only is He present in the darkness and as our perfect, loving, heavenly Father in the darkness, but He's present as one who can be trusted in the darkness with absolutely everything. And you know that because what Jesus now entrusts to him is the most precious thing that any of us, including Christ, has, which is our spirit. Jesus gasps and he says, Father, into your hands I commit the most significant and important part of me, which is my spirit. And then Luke says that having said this, Jesus, what? Breathed his last and died. And then what happened? Because it's awesome. Then the sun came out. The light returned. And as Matthew tells us, the earth shook. So let's rehearse for a second, okay? Because we're looking for reasons, several actually, to be able to praise God and to worship God and to follow God courageously even when we're in darkness. Even when some form of death, literal, metaphorical, whatever, is on our doorstep. So what have we seen thus far? Well, we've seen that first of all, We can praise and worship Jesus and follow Him courageously even in the midst of darkness and death because our God is with us in the midst of our darkness and death. He is with us, and He's with us as our loving Heavenly Father. That's His disposition toward us. And He's with us as our loving Heavenly Father even when we can't see Him, smell Him, hear Him, taste Him, touch Him, or otherwise sense His presence. And we know that because the Word of God tells us that. And he's a God who cannot lie. And more than that, we know that from the very nature of God himself. He is a God who is everywhere present, and 100% of himself is everywhere present. He's not divisible the way that we are. He focuses upon us 100% of himself, 100% of the time. That's the gift of being infinite. It's a remarkable thought. And it's a good thing to remember in dark places. Secondly, I think we've learned that we can praise and worship Jesus and follow Him courageously even in the midst of darkness and death because our God can be trusted in the midst of our darkness and death, and He can be trusted with everything, even our own soul. My goodness, if we can trust Him with our soul, can we not then trust Him with our kids? 
Can we not then trust them or him with our business? Can we not then trust him with absolutely everything else? He can be trusted. Thirdly, we've learned that we can praise and worship Jesus and follow him courageously, even in the midst of darkness and death, because our Heavenly Father, guys, is at work in our darkness and death. Taking it and using the whole of it ironically, turning it all around, you see, and using it stunningly, and oftentimes in ways that we cannot see until it's long past, and then we look back on these seasons of darkness in our lives and we say things like, you know, I really wouldn't want to relive that, but I also wouldn't undo that because of the fruit that I've seen come from that. God is taking it and He's using it to advance His purposes in us and through us. He's at work in the darkness. And even when the darkness has blinded us to the ways in which He is at work, we need to remember that He is at work in ways that are so stunningly good that when we do see them, we will praise Him. We will worship Him. We will thank Him for putting us through them because they are so good that they will in fact justify everything we endured in the darkness, just like he takes the darkness and death endured by Christ and he uses them or uses it to purchase our salvation. It's astonishing. And then lastly, we've learned that, that we can praise and worship Jesus and follow him courageously even in the midst of darkness and death because light follows darkness. And as we'll see next week, life follows death for the people of God. Again, you open the Bible, page one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They were dark, they were dead. Until he spoke, let there be light. Darkness followed by light. Okay, just work your way through that whole story, day by day by day. How does every day end? There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning the third day. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. There was darkness that was followed by a light. The trajectory of Scripture is a movement from darkness to light. And so it is for God's people. So if you're in the dark, then remember that what awaits you is infinite, eternal, and glorious light. The sun will come out again. And so even in darkness and death, there are lots of reasons why we can praise our God and and worship our God and serve Him and live for Him courageously. And not just can, like, you know, if I decide to do it, but, but we ought to be compelled to do it. And even if we don't see that yet, it's pretty clear at least that the characters in the story seem to. Because Luke then says in verse 47, he says, Now when the centurion, who no doubt was one of the soldiers, by the way, who mocked and abused and beat Jesus and all manner of stuff, he might have been the one who whipped him. He could have been the one to drive the spikes in. He certainly seems to be overseeing this. Death is his profession. He's an executioner. He signs the death certificates legally at the end of this story. The centurion. Now think about this. That guy saw what had taken place here in the death of Jesus. Light to darkness and then darkness to light. Earth quaking. He witnessed the way in which the Lord died. And then what did he do? What what was the spontaneous reaction of his heart? He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. It's better translated righteous. So certainly this man was righteous. Now, what is that if not a confession of sin? 
What is he saying? He's going to this guy that I just mocked and beat and abused and spit upon and whipped and flogged and nailed to the cross and all of this stuff. Okay, that guy that I just did all of that to is innocent. It's righteous. But instead of cowering before God, which seems to me to be the natural reaction, my goodness, I might be in big trouble for this. He's praising the Lord. And how can he do that? I don't think he can unless he understands and believes on at least some level that this innocent, righteous man whom he has just executed was executed voluntarily. Himself on that cross paid the sin even for this man's guilt, for my guilt and for yours. And then we read that all the crowds, it just goes through who all was there. All the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle and that had ridiculed Christ and said things to him, mocking him, saying, you know what? If you're the son of God, come down off of that cross. Hey, Jesus, you've saved others. Now, why don't you save yourself? The crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home very different. They returned home beating their breasts in sorrow and in mourning, and not just over what they had seen, but over what they had done, thus preparing their hearts, cultivating their hearts for what I think comes next for many of them, what comes after the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the pouring out of His Spirit and the preaching of the gospel by the apostles in Acts chapter 2, also written by this same guy, Luke is that thousands come to faith in Jesus. Thousands realize, oh, wait a minute. Okay, hang on a second. Now I get it because like if he actually was going to save others, then he had to refuse to save himself. He had to do what he did on that cross that he might save me. And then Luke says that all of Jesus' acquaintances likely a reference to his apostles and the women who had followed him from Galilee. So they followed the whole of his ministry, stood at a distance, probably out of modesty because he was naked, and they watched these things, risking their lives in all likelihood to do this. And then Luke says, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, the same council that had falsely charged and tried and convicted Jesus and then politically coerced Pilate to torture and to kill him on this cross. And yet, Luke says that he was good and what? Righteous. It's the same word as used for innocent earlier, of Christ. Speaks well of Joseph. So he was a member of the council, and yet, surprisingly, he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the decision of that council, and he was looking for the kingdom of God, which almost certainly in this context means that he was a secret follower of Jesus. He was like Nicodemus, if you remember that story. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus under the cloak of darkness. Do you remember? He sneaks over with his questions. And John tells us that Nicodemus is a part of this story too, though Luke doesn't mention him. Well, his secret following of Christ is over. And what's remarkable is that it's over at a time when it looks like the ministry of Jesus is over. I mean, I realize that, you know, Jesus has said on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And everybody kind of got that message. I mean, you know, as we'll talk about, the Jewish religious leaders post a guard at his grave because they know that he has said that that's what he will do. But even though he has said that repeatedly, and that has permeated the community to some degree at least, nobody's buying this. Here's how messiahs died in those days. And there were many alleged messiahs. They died on a Roman cross. And a dead messiah was a failed messiah in the minds of the people of Israel. Joseph and Nicodemus have been secret followers of Jesus 
until he dies, until they see how he dies, and then they out themselves entirely. And in doing so, they remove themselves from the Jerusalem elite. They sacrifice their reputation, they sacrifice their money, they sacrifice everything, and not just for themselves, but for their families, and they sacrifice it right here. Inspired by the darkness and death, Joseph couldn't take it anymore. So he sacrifices his position as part of the Jerusalem elite by going to Pilate and asking for the body of Jesus so that he might spare it the indignity of being eaten by scavenger birds or taken down off of the cross and thrown into the common grave that they used for executed criminals. And he and Nicodemus, as John tells us, took it down off of the cross, embalmed it with an outrageously expensive amount of spices. It's like unto a king in some way, and wrapped it in a linen shroud. And then they laid Jesus in a tomb, cut out a stone. It's a, it's a cave where no one ever yet had been laid. No other dead body had ever been placed. And Luke notes now that it was the day of preparation. So it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. It's Friday, and Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. And the Sabbath was beginning, so they needed to hurry up now so that they could observe the Sabbath. And so the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee and who had followed Joseph and Nicodemus and seen the tomb and how his body was laid there and where it was laid is the idea, they then returned home and they prepared even more spices and ointments to further embalm his body. And here's their plan. We're going to come After the Sabbath, so Sunday morning, it's now Friday evening, we're going to come Sunday morning and we're going to further embalm his body. They're not expecting resurrection, yet they're faithful to this Lord, courageously so. And so that's where we'll pick up our story next week, or really tomorrow if you do your personal worship here, that's where you'll pick up this story. And next week it will be a story of light and life. So come back. But in between then and now, don't forget that there is no story of light and life apart from this story of darkness and death, guys. And not for Jesus, not for me, not for you, and not for anyone. This story is precious. And even within this story of darkness and death, there is reason after reason after reason after reason for us in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our deaths as we experience them in this life, to praise and worship Christ and to follow Him, not secretly, but courageously. For on that cross, that Jesus absorbed our darkness and put it to death in His body, that the cherubim might be dismissed and the way to the Father and eternal life might be made open to us. And He secured in that moment for us a relationship with Almighty God, which is one in which we don't have to cower in fear before Him because we've been made free of everything that should rightly cause us to cower in fear before Him. And instead, we are free to walk together with Him. He is our Father. And we are His children, and He is a Father who is present with us in our darkness. Even when we can't see Him, smell Him, hear Him, taste Him, touch Him, or sense His presence, for His Word is truth, and it says it, and that's it. He can be trusted in our darkness with everything, even our souls. He's working in our darkness right now in ways that we can't understand, granted, but in ways that we need to trust 
will be so good that in the end we will understand and further praise Him. Further praise Him, for they will justify everything we endure in the dark. And He is a Father who will make sure that your darkness forever ends in light and everything that light represents. Which I think is what we're all looking for. So, I hope that encourages you, particularly if right now you're in the dark. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by this picture of our Lord. God, we are stunned by your humility, by your grace, by your mercy. Lord, by your love for undeserving, rebellious creatures such as we. Though we have mocked you, though we have beaten you, though we have abused and spit upon you in so many different ways, for our sin you hung there. You did not save yourself so that you might save us. That is a manifestation of your great glory and of your great love. Lord, let that overwhelm us. Let us lay down our pride and foolishness, our need to do things our ways, our agenda, whatever. Lord, and let us run through the dismissed cherubim, if you will, through Jesus Christ, who alone is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. He speaks rightly. Let us run to the Father who waits to embrace us, who is with us in our darkness as our Father, who can be trusted, who's using it all for good, and who will make sure that it ends in light. Do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.